everyone. Welcome back to the Mike Rosart Show. I'm filming tonight from my basement, one of my basement offices. And so we're just chilling here. I don't know if the internet's gonna be able to reach. I got a pretty big basement and I don't know if I have enough Wi-Fi extenders, but here we are, we're just chilling. So if anyone joins in, and I guess the first couple people I see you guys joining on, if you can hear me, let me know that it is connected and that it's going okay. Um, because again, I'm quite a ways away from um, my Wi-Fi router, so hopefully it's okay. This is kind of the part of my basement that I'm never in. It's sort of my own little dungeon area. I've got like a, a giant eight-foot desk here, and we've got another standing desk around the corner over there, and a printing station, and then actually that room back there, that's the gym. So maybe I'll give you guys a little tour of uh, this little area, potentially. But uh, okay, perfect. People are joining in and they can hear me. Hey, Mike, sounds good. We can hear you. I can hear you. Hey, hey, hey. Perfect. Yeah, so um, what have I been up to and, and what's the update, I guess, before the normal show? Today, talking about freedom money and I talk a lot on this channel about this idea of freedom and not having to do things you don't want to do. But guess what? I do a lot of things that I don't want to do and so it's an illusion and it's a myth and it starts in the mind more than anything else. I'll give you an example. What was up, what I've been up to this week? So one of the things, I was very sick this weekend. I, I don't know if I have COVID because I didn't get tested, but I was very sick. Intense back pain, intense headache, a little bit of sinus, that sort of thing. Um, and it was brutal. It was you know, some of the worst um, sickness I felt in a while, but I didn't have a fever and I didn't have most of the COVID symptoms, nothing respiratory, and I'm feeling better now. I was hardcore on the garlic, hardcore on uh, you know, zinc, and vitamin C and all the natural natural things to get better. But um, that was what kind of took me out for like five, six days. And most of that was because I was feeling a bit of burnout. I think I let my immune system get weak. I wasn't sleeping well. My daughter's been waking up at, uh, my second daughter's been waking up at 4.35 o'clock every morning. Uh, my other daughter's been waking up at midnight and 3.30. And for like an hour about, we have to lay with her and help her get to sleep. So between my two daughters and my late night routines that I already sort of have, um, geez, I was getting, you know, four or five hours sleep many days. And then not to mention all the messages and things, right? Like I'm involved in so many real estate projects that just the number of people updating me on the situations of things was becoming a bit overwhelming. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I was doing way more than I should. And with as many properties as, as I have, you know, it's kind of become clear to me that it's not possible to own real estate and have it not consume time. Property managers messaging you, um, I have an example, we actually have another tenant board case of a property we bought over a year ago that just at almost a statute of limitations point and uh, going after us for a large amount of, of damages. And I'm not even an owner on this property, I'm actually just the realtor who is helping out on the transaction. I managed the property for like a month and a half and another tenant was annoying them and they're going after us for reasonable enjoyment because another tenant that we didn't place that came in the property because of terrible property management company, JDM Property Management, <coughs> uh, placed them. And uh, I actually got them out in 40, geez, like from the date I bought it to the date they moved out, we're talking like a month and a half. So I got this tenant out in a month and a half and another tenant left as a result because they felt unsafe. Now there was nothing that ever, like they never broke into the unit or nothing violent ever happened at the property, but there were, I guess, insinuations and, and those sorts of things. So I ended up going to the, the LTV and it's my last time ever going. Um, I had vowed that I would never get involved in this kind of thing. I tried to, you know, throw money at the situation because then many times that's the solution. Um, but I went because I couldn't couldn't get someone else in, in quick enough time to go. 
Now we have another hearing scheduled where we have to go through some of the, the minute details. I'm fairly confident we'll win. I did everything that a landlord should reasonably do to get a tenant out as quickly as possible. Except maybe that I had a lot going on, didn't communicate as well as I maybe could have, but got the tenant out and solved the problem in a relatively short amount of time using N5 or N6 or any other legal means would have taken probably two to three times as long. So got a quick resolution when, you know, anyway, it costs a lot of money too. So we had to evict the, the, the bad tenant and get him out and clean the unit up. And it was a terrible situation that happened over a year ago. But now for some reason, this tenant who had left willingly uh, a year ago is bringing this up at the LTB. She hasn't been a tenant of ours for oh, about a year. So about a year we haven't had her as a tenant, but just, just wild that some of this stuff, you know, as a landlord, I called in like I had no choice. I had to show up unless I could assign someone to go in our in our place. And then even if I assign, like even if imagine I'm trying to outsource this issue, right? And and by the way, we did everything in our legal like legal means. We were not unfair to anyone. In, in my opinion, we did. We went above and beyond what a normal landlord would do. I sent maintenance people there on several occasions. I was getting calls at two, three in the morning. The police were there to try to you know calm the situation down. I would say we did everything we could as as good landlords over that you know month or month and a half, we have this terrible tenant we're trying to get out. And it affected other tenants in the property. Now one of those other tenants in the property says we didn't do enough, right? It's like, well, what is enough, right? How do you evict another tenant instantaneously? There, there is no way, right? Um, people you know, expect the world and it's crazy that this is a good example because, and I thought the, the moral of this story, the learning outcome, because there has to be a learning outcome out of everything that you do, right? It has to be an improvement, is that the landlord has to show up and I thought, mandatory, that's, that's crazy. Like, what if a tenant's time's worth nothing and the application is free and they get free legal help and a landlord's time could be worth, you know, depending on who they are, $1,000 an hour. So a tenant could drag your time and waste your time for hours and hours and hours. And I thought, geez, this, you know, even being a property manager, even being involved at all in, in real estate, I'm thinking to myself, it's just not passive enough. Like, it's, it's just not. And, you know, like, again, didn't place any of these tenants at all. Wasn't even involved in, in placing these. In fact, one unit was vacant and we bought it in the process of buying this property to selling uh, a terrible property management company. Didn't get the memo that it was vacant possession and actually placed the tenant. Pretty crazy stuff. Uh, so we probably have damages to after that property management company who's terrible. Um, but, or the previous landlord who kind of started this whole thing. Um, but it's one of those terrible things that as a property owner, you keep getting dragged in. City, the city wants to drag you in for, for building permits or for infractions. You know, the, the tenants want to drag you to lend their tenant board and they want to waste your time. And so as an owner, it's very difficult to outsource completely. The process of even outsourcing this, you might say, Mike, you've got so much money. Just literally throw it at the problem and you won't have to worry about, you know, like I was laying up at night stressed about this hearing and like, you know, I had these notes and things like that. And the process of actually outsourcing it is literally documenting everything that has happened, like typing up a timeline, saving emails, attaching them, attaching the N5 notices that were served, attaching, you know, whatever notices uh, were associated with N11 with that tenant leaving and N11 with the other tenant who wanted to leave, just associating that entire package. That takes like a day or two of work. That to me is worth like five, ten thousand $10,000. That's how much of my time it's worth to do that. Now to give that to a paralegal, I still have to dig all those old files up and all that old communication and print it all and send it all. So even if I'm not going to the trial, it's still gonna cost me a day of time. And that's the reality of residential landlording in Ontario. It sucks. Um, it just, it's a lot of time. Sometimes it goes smoothly and nothing happens, but some stuff like this happens too sometimes. 
And it's a sad reality, I think, for, I guess for me that I'm realizing that there is no way to properly outsource real estate and generate a great return. If I remove myself completely from the buying process, from the closing process, and by the way, that's impossible because I have to obtain financing somehow. I have to arrange all that. And the process to get financing can be dozens of hours depending on your application and all going through all the motions to get things closed, right? But if I can remove myself from all of that and then close on a property and imagine I could get into a property and have a designer come in and do it all and outsource it all, I don't think there's enough profit to justify uh, if you outsource everything, and literally I'm talking like lawyers to fight tenants if you had issues with tenants that you assumed when you bought a property. Ideally, you buy every property vacant and you place good tenants. Um, but, you know, the world isn't perfect and, you know, some properties come with placed bad tenants or they come with good tenants too. Um, it just depends. I've had some good tenants placed too into properties. But again, having a, a vacant building is ideal when you buy a property. Um, so if you can find one on the market that's vacant, pay a premium for that property because the profit isn't worth the headache has sort of been my uh, thesis here. But anyway, um, yeah, so I just wanna kind of share that. That's been up in my week. Being sick and, and realizing, you know, your health, when you come out of, one thing I do love about being really sick and, and getting better is that when you come out of one of those situations where you've been really sick, you appreciate the air you breathe. You go outside in a sunny day and you're like, wow, it's an amazing day. Um, so one of the things I love most about recovering from a sickness though is that feeling of, I'm so, th I'm so thankful to be alive. Um, that feeling of like, I have a second chance at life. Every time I get sick, for some reason, it's terrible. And then when I'm better, I just feel like the, we're just thankful to be alive. Um, and we should be thankful to be alive. And so that's how I'm feeling coming out of this illness is like, I have a lot of stuff going on. I can get like four or five building permit applications we were gonna to have to submit and rent license issues with the city that most of my property management company can't finagle or can't figure out um, a bunch of other like little projects that I have to do. But after that, I don't, I don't think I'm subscribing to any new projects. I've um, sort of decided that I'm not taking on anything new. So when people come to me with, you know, GB opportunities or they come to me with anything that requires my active time. And I used to think that projects wouldn't require active time, but they do. They you know, whenever you get involved in any sort of business partnership or any sort of acquisition of property, it ends up taking a lot of your time. You don't think it will, but it will. And so I've sort of shut that down thinking along the lines that, you know, it does, I'd rather just invest, to be honest, in like, I, I could trade stock and get a 10, 12% return. I could do lending and get a 10, 12% return. And if I remove myself from real estate, I go from a 40% return, probably down to a 12% return, 12 to 15%, right? So it's made me sort of think that, geez, it's just my time and I'm basically creating a job or a business for myself. And that's not what I'm looking for. That's not the financial independence, you know, lifestyle that I was trying to build and I, I don't need to work anymore. And so for me, that's, that's a big mental shift. And I'm thankful for opportunities where I get overwhelmed and get stressed out because it now forces me to say no. So now I've drawn a line, line in the sand. For 2020, I'll be taking on no new projects. I'll be wrapping up only what I have. And for 2021, I'm looking at an open horizon of trying to do things that are easily automated. So businesses that are easily automated or yeah, probably not even going to invest in a whole lot of real estate. I might as an agent help you know, my mentees and friends and things like that with some properties, but um, I don't think I'm actively going to be invested. I think I'm going to draw a line in the sand and say, hey, this is what I'm willing to do. This is what I'm not willing to do. And having gone through what I've gone through in the last few months, 
I can confidently say I know where to draw the line. And that's, that took this, going through this, for it to happen. All right, Q&A time, guys. Hey, Anthony. Hey, Victor. Hey, Sam. Hey, Kaylee. Hey, Ben. Brandon, how you doing? Gavin, thanks for the comment. Appreciate it. South London. Hey, good to see you too. Ruben says hello. Hey, Key, how you doing? I am feeling much better. Thank you for asking. Bill, how you doing? Okay, Gavin's got a question. Gavin Reed says, I was let go due to COVID. Hopefully you didn't have COVID and you were let go because of that. That would be terrible. Um, I assume it's just because of what's happened in the global scheme. I'm having a lot of trouble finding another job and not having much luck. I'm thinking of taking the time to move to a new career, but not sure. Any thoughts or advice? Hmm. I think COVID could be a great reset. It could be a good time to, and you know what? COVID's been, as much as it's been negative, if you guys listen to my streams through COVID, you could hear sort of my, my understandings of how things have kind of adapted. But I think there's been some positive outcomes out of COVID. One big positive coming out of COVID is we realized we can get things done virtually. So as an example, uh, landlord tenant board hearings were never virtual or over the phone. They now are. Um, as an example, uh, the city never did inspections virtually. They are for some building permits now doing video, video stuff and passing inspections that way, which speeds things up exponentially. Applications online like we've never seen before. Um, we're finding employees can work distantly. That means you don't have to live in downtown core Toronto if you work in Toronto. You know, if you work in the Bay, you know, like in Cali somewhere in Silicon Valley, you don't have to live there per se to be almost as effective or in many cases more effective. So talking about like career post COVID, I think that if you can develop a set of skills where, so that door's open, I might just shift. Oh, let's go guys. Or the kids come down here. There's my little tour. Uh, this is my printing station, as you can see. Printing station. There's just some storage and stuff. That's, those are pickles. We actually made these pretty cool. Eh? We cucumbers from the field uh, a couple of weeks ago. We uh, cleaned them all off and we pickled. We made our own organic pickles. Uh, yeah, so this is the printing station here where I kind of print. My other office is sort of down there. There's a couple of chairs. This is my gym. Oh, the gym needs a ways to go, to be honest, but I guess I want to see the gym. Can you see it? Just like a bench press, stair stepper, full eight and a half foot rowing machine, and then an elliptical. So that's the gym. Close this door. Got a spare office room now. Wow, got a bonus room in here. I'm gonna set this up as my uh, my YouTube studio, maybe as another another office. But where we're gonna sit tonight? Because nice and close to the router is outside there. Got a seat at the table. Oh, that's that's messy. That's embarrassing, actually. <laughs> I shouldn't show that. Okay. I lost like four of my chargers, guys. I have like four iPhone chargers, and I've lost all of them, which is just wild. Nice and close. Okay, I'm gonna keep going through the questions here. I think we're connected. If my battery dies, I'm sorry. I don't think it's gonna reach all the way. 
charging, that's fine. Okay, let's keep going here. I just heard the door open up there and I thought, geez, my kids might run down the stairs and then that would be a nightmare to deal with. So I just figured I'd move down here. So you're let go during your job. Um, you let go from your job because of COVID. Thinking of taking a time to move into a new career and I think that's, that's smart. Um, we're in an economy now where you can build skills that allow you to work remotely. And there's nothing more efficient than working remotely. If you worked in your last job, um, you know, you had to come into an office, think how much time was wasted just driving into the office um, to and from work, you know, getting set up, getting to sit down at your desk, uh, you know, wasting time with the water cooler. I know in, a, in an office setting, they say around 60 to 70% of the time people are utilized. So 30 to 40% of the time, you're not even doing anything. Another 10 to 20% of the time, you're traveling. Um, it's one of those things where you waste, geez, probably like 30, 40 hours a week, depending on what kind of job you work. You could work almost, waste almost a full-time job worth of time if you work a 60-hour week, just doing inefficient nothing. And from home, you can get your whole work done in like 25 hours, 20 hours. So that's what I love about working from home is you can get so much more done than you could uh, before. So I would say find, find a career or find something that intersects your interests uh, where you have decent autonomy over everything that you do and then sort of align that with what you, and so it's what you enjoy, what you're good at and, you know, sort of finding the intersection of what pays you uh, decently. So finding that kind of thing would be, would be ideal. Okay. I'll try to catch up to these questions here. I see some questions popping up in the bottom and I will answer them, but I got to try to do this in the order. The only time I ever jump a question is if someone super chats, that's the rule of the live stream. Everyone's got to wait their turn. Uh, so I guess Gavin, the follow-up question would be, you know, f what do you enjoy doing? And then finding out, you know, is there a way to apply that interest or that skill set that you already have to, you know, a lucrative side hustle or something that would allow you to provide for yourself? Uh, and if the answer is no, then what skills could you acquire to do that? Um, there are tons of opportunities through COVID to take on things virtually. Um, unemployment is high, but you have to remember that many new businesses and sectors have been created out of this, right? So maybe a traditional industry might have pivoted, but a new industry opens whenever one closes, right? So there, there's tons of opportunity if you know where to look. And I think that um, that's something to be thankful for too. And is that you know, even if you can find a job doing it 20 hours a week, you can make the same as you made before in your 40 hour a week because you're more efficient per hour now working from home. Okay. And I do feel for you and I, I do hope that you're able to, to find something you enjoy and that you know, I guess not all work is enjoyable, to be honest, like this idea that and there's a lot of socialists out there that I hear talking around saying, hey, like, I should be able to paint for a living and make 50 grand a year. I should be able to play video games for a living and make 50 grand a year. And like, that isn't just how, that's not how life works. Work sucks. For the most part, working a job, that's why the fire movement came about. That's why it's getting so much uh, pressure and enjoyment from people who are trying to push it and, and say, hey, this is the new sliced bread is because work sucks. The idea of work is you're being paid to do something that typically you don't want to do. Um, if it was a hobby, then you probably wouldn't charge for it. You probably wouldn't try to earn income from it. Now, if you're getting paid to do your hobby, that's a bonus, right? Like it doesn't get better than that. But uh, work is typically doing something you don't enjoy. So people always message me and say, you know, Mike, uh, I hate my work or whatever. Like it, there must be more to life. And I'm like, well, there's the fire movement. There's finding a way out of that work. Um, but there's also finding a way to more meaningful work. And in which case you should still have a fire sort of parachute set up because 
your job can change, your industry can change, your business can change. You know, where Airbnb was doing amazingly as an example, during COVID, that business was drastically destroyed. Most of the Airbnb profile was terrible. There's a lot of prostitutes, drug dealers, local people who just needed somewhere to stay. There was no travelers. So it was just, you take, like there was a, it was just a tough business to be in um, when you know, things dropped in a, in a big way, right? And it's one of those things where, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's blessed if you can find something that you, that you love. Okay, next question. What is the average cost to add bedrooms to a basement? Materials and labor. That depends. Um, if I had to think about costing out like a basement from finished or unfinished, like you could have, as an example, like this is sort of, uh, these windows are old, it's already finished here before, right? So um, my basement here was already finished. And so you can imagine if this basement was already finished and you bought a property like this one, and uh, the most annoying thing is when someone texts me who knows I'm doing a live stream right now and they're still texting me. You know who you are and you know better. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so this, this wall here as an example um, would be like an interior wall. And so an interior wall would cost different than an exterior wall. And so if you, I don't know where you, like where you are in your basement, but imagine you had a basement that was finished, like the outside was finished already. You were just putting in an interior wall with a door. Those two interior walls would be a lot cheaper to do. It'd be, I don't know, maybe 50 or 100 studs and a door and some draw, some insulation and some drywall between, a little bit of electrical if you wanna put some electrical in the wall. Um, we're talking a couple thousand dollars maximum. And that's if you have to add drywall on the ceiling, the walls. Um, so yeah, I would say that could be a cheap bedroom, right? But another example could be that you've got wires running through the ceiling and you need to raise the ceiling height up and you've got to soundproof it and you know to drywall it, all the wires and plumbing have to be moved up and now the exterior walls aren't finished. So you've got to you know, frame the exterior walls to code and you have to have a building permit to do that and you have to you know, put insulation in and vapor barrier and et cetera and so forth. In which case a bedroom could cost five or $10,000 depending on the contractors that you used. Um, I've seen it cost between $500 to put a bedroom in. That's the cheapest I've ever seen someone do it. And that was with drywall they already had and a little bit of wood they already had and their own, their own labor. Um, that about 500 bucks to about $10,000. So it varies so much depending on what you're doing. And that's why I say like, if you don't want to have any involvement in your property at all and you outsource it to like a professional contractor, like someone who's going to be super reliable, high quality work. They're going to pull a permit. They're going to do everything properly. They're going to manage the electrician, the like plumbers, the whole crew. You don't have to do a thing. You hand them the keys. They do the drawings. They do everything. You do nothing like a proper passive real estate investor. They might cost you 10 or 12 grand to do a bedroom. You can, I've seen some of these professional contractors, really good ones charge 50, 60, $70,000 to finish a basement with a small bathroom, kitchen, and two bedrooms. So it's not unheard of that in a completely passive situation where you didn't optimize for trade costs or material costs, you could pay you know, upwards of, um, in some cases, I don't know, the whole, the whole value added. And that's, that's the problem with real estate in some ways too, is that if you spend 100 grand to renovate a basement and you only add 90 grand in value to your property, you've wasted or lost $10,000 renovating your property. So in some cases, it doesn't make sense to renovate. And where it makes sense is if you could do the renovation yourself or you can manage the sub-trades at least. Bring in you know, $25 an hour framer and a $25 an hour plumber on the side and you're just doing a weekend job for you for one day for he's having to make a few hundred bucks and you, know, you could find a, a cheap flooring and you can get it all done, you know, manage it yourself. 
you could get a basement done really cheap and then add 90 grand in value, you do it for 20, you could make 70 grand spread, right? That's a lot of what I used to do. That was how I made a lot of money was injecting my time and my expertise into a real estate deal to make it super profitable. But without that time and expertise, um, it's hard to do. And so that's something I'm, I'm really grappling with these days is that your time has to be worth about less than $40 an hour for it to make sense. Um, so if your time is worth like 50 to 100 to 200 to $300 an hour, you're a lawyer, you're a doctor, you're a dentist, something like that, then I think, and no Milo, not letting you in buddy. He sees me in the window, wants to come in so bad. Um, I don't think it's worth it. And I've said that before and I'll say it again. I, I think that it depends on what your time's worth. And by the way, there are, the average person, 50 bucks an hour in real estate investing, investing their time into real estate at 50 bucks an hour return is fantastic. You know, with no appreciation, that's, you, you'll get at least that. So I think that that could be a great side hustle. You know, if you get a rental property that made you 40, 50 bucks an hour for your time to manage it and you know, whatever, that could be a great side hustle for someone. And they're like, hey, I spent a few hours a week, you know, I'm making 500 bucks a month for my rental property. I'm okay with that trade. Now for me, I don't want to spend a few hours a week on a property to make 500 bucks a month. That's, that's a terrible prospect. I, I would want to sell that property off because I have enough passive income from other sources, right? It just, I now value my time at a different rate than I used to. When I was 20 years old and I was buying 19 with my first property and I guess 21 with my second one, at that time when I was buying, I think at my day job I was making $50,000 $50, a year with my first year and 55 in my second year. So that time when I was working 50 hours a week for that salary, I was worth 28 bucks an hour in my full-time job. So I was happy to do all the real estate stuff because that was like, a, you know, I was making in some cases, in most cases, a lot more than I was making in my day job doing the side hustle. And so it just depends where you are in your journey. And, and so I guess that question was sort of long-winded, but uh, what does it cost to add to a bedroom? It depends. It depends. Hey Mike, thanks as always for all your support. I look forward to Wednesday's learning with you and from learning with you and from you. Okay. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate that. Bill says, what's your top tips for finding good tenants? You know, I don't do tenant placement really anymore. Um, for liability reasons, I think anyone who's got a bit of money shouldn't be in the property management game at all. Um, here in Ontario, it's shifting towards favor of the tenants. And so don't put yourself at risk. Um, don't directly manage your property at all. Um, that's my advice. If you have a good amount of wealth, don't put yourself in the line of fire to end up at the LTB, to end up being sued. Um, so that's, I guess, my first thing. And if your time is valuable, it's better and cheaper to hire someone for 25, 30 bucks an hour, right? So if you can find a property manager to take over your property and you make 50 bucks an hour, hire them, do it for 25. Then you've outsourced your, your property management and it's actually saving you time. You might say that's, that's crazy because I'm getting less cash flow, but when you kind of run the numbers, you'll see that it's not really, um, it's actually better for you to invest your time elsewhere. Hey Ivan, how you doing? Future Wiz. That's true. Yeah. I, I was actually making like 39,000 USD. Um, yeah, about 39,000 USD. A little bit less actually at the time currency. I think I worked it out to like 38,000 was what I was making. So that, I wasn't making good money really. I made a lot of money investing in real estate. Uh, my primary residence was one of the, you know, I made like a good amount of money there and my second primary residence and et cetera and so forth. Uh, it's one of the greatest tax vehicles that exist is, you know, you should own a, like, own a home as soon as you can. We bought one at 19. And so I've been a homeowner for like nine years and you know, every year it's been appreciation and growth. And as I move and upsize, you get to bring that profit with you. Um, so now I'm in almost a million dollar house today, a little bit less than a million, but it's, uh, you know, 
honestly, this house has been pretty much paid for by me buying houses over time and living in them and them appreciating in value and me fixing them up, et cetera, and so forth. So my first $200,000 house got me to where I am today, um, just from sort of upsizing tax-free over time. The primary residence tax vehicle is, is a fantastic one and I highly recommend it. Uh, next question on the list. I lost my spot, I just scroll back up. Oh, I didn't fully answer the question on finding good tenants. I was sort of punting the ball and saying, find a manager to do it. But yeah, if you want to find good tenants, some things you could do would be, um, I, I've said this before on the streams, but the, the biggest indicator of a good tenant in my, well, I guess it depends what you're looking for, but in most cases, it's ability to pay their rent. Um, of course, you're gonna post your unit at market rent, so that isn't really a factor but ability to pay the rent is a big one. I look for three to four times rent. So if your rent's a thousand bucks a month and that's market rent, then you want someone making like four grand a month minimum. Um, and look at their debt obligations, credit score. Do they have a car that they're paying for or do they own it outright? You know, do they have child support commitments they have to make? Do they have other debts, student loans? What sort of debt issues do they have and what are they tackling right now? Because that's gonna factor in their ability to pay. Um, so all those things determine, you know, what is a good tenant. But I've also heard stories, and I haven't had a ton of these tenants, but of tenants who uh, are great with their rent, but really just annoying. So like, there's a crack. I mean, look, for example, like, I actually had a tenant once like this. I inherited them, I didn't place them. Like, do you see I see on my window there, it's like the caulking, is sort of like, someone's painted over the caulking, it's a bit of cracking. I used to get tenants that would take pictures of this stuff, like little imperfections that are in every house, especially an old house. Like, it's full of these little things, and like a divot, probably some little drip on the drywall, whatever. And they would send me them and be like, this is very dangerous. I'm gonna take this to the landlord tenant board. Like, I'm really worried about this. And I'm like, that's a hardened paint drip. Or someone would send me, you know, like the stupidest little things. Like the, the hardwood floor, it's like 50 years old and refinished and beautiful. But they would send like, where there's like a divot in the hardwood, like this is really dangerous thing. Bugs are gonna be coming out of that crack. Like you need to rip these floors up immediately. Those kinds of tenants, despite being good, are so entitled that they should buy their own house and be broke trying to fix it. Um, yeah, so it's one of those things where an ideal tenant is one, and you'll make sacrifices too. Like if someone just kind of comments, I saw it pop up. I pay a thousand in rent and make 2,400 a month, no debt and good with money. There you go. Like Joe is probably a great tenant, but the problem is, well, okay, so what you can do is if they're willing to offer you their bank statements and their credit card statements and they could black out the account numbers but show you how they spend their money, that's a good tenant. I've had a tenant do that to me and say, hey, I make two grand a month, but look how I spend my money. I'm super frugal, just like you are, Mike, and this is where I spent all my money. Here's my like open book, you can take a look. I only make two grand, but I'm really good with my money. I can make a thousand rand. Call my three previous landlords the last four years. You'll see that I've you know, made all of the, the payments, et cetera, so forth. I have savings set aside. That's a big one, by the way. Savings set aside is huge. You wanna make sure not only that they have income coming in, but if they lose their job, they can still pay rent. You wanna see that they have savings set aside. The best thing, and I always say this, the best thing is the tenant has something to lose. A tenant with nothing to lose will destroy your property and walk away and there's nothing you can do. But a tenant who has savings or is embedded in the community in some way, they'll care about your property. They're not out to just destroy the property and disappear. The goal of the landlord is to preserve the property and collect the rent, right? Preserve it for everyone else to enjoy, preserve it for themselves, for future tenants to enjoy, keep the building in good condition. And I guess that's the job of the property manager. The, the owner really is their job is to make a profit. Um, but the property manager's job is to maintain the building and make sure that the rent is paid, right? And so as property manager role, your job is to find a tenant who will be a good steward of the unit and will pay the rent. 
and that's it. That's, that's a good tenant. Um, savings are a big thing I like. Um, you can look at their profession. That's indicative of, you know, and honestly, profession's not a good one, it's tough. But sometimes you'll see like, this, I'll give you a weird example. Like there was a, a dental, um, a dentist that I, a dental student that I placed and they're going to make hundred grand a year, but right now for the year they didn't have good income. And I saw the transcripts, like they're super bright, super smart, great reputation, you know, parents willing to get on the lease and everything. They didn't have the income qualification to, to rent to them. They actually had no income at the time, but within a year they were able to get like an $80,000 a year job. And so I knew that tenant who had great credit and all these things, they were a perfect tenant. I was happy to place them because the overall picture was this person's gonna be a dentist in a year. They're about to graduate dental school and they've got a huge investment in themselves. They're not going to screw up their entire career and mess up over you know, a rental unit. So that's an example of like someone who didn't make any income, but was a great tenant because of their career, because of you know, future prospects. Um, and so that's something to kind of think about too when you're you know, renting the tenants. People who are unemployed, um, who have no savings, you know, talk to their previous landlords, those could be maybe red flags. Um, but yeah, it's your job to protect yourself and you wanna have as little red flags as possible. There are some landlords who, and this is crazy, but I know some landlords who are in the slumlord program and they rent only to like homeless people. They have some program at the city or they rent to like these like ODSP homeless people who get government money and it's a train wreck after train wreck. Like the houses get destroyed, the city comes in and cleans it up for them. There's some program that runs. So there are landlords who look for that as the good tenant because the city's backing the tenant. So I don't know, I've heard some wild stories like that. I'm not in that drama business because just the amount of drama associated with that isn't worth um, the money. But I know some people are in that game too. And so cool if you're in that game, that could be a good tenant too, I guess. If that's, I guess if the city backed you, you could consider that a good tenant. I wouldn't consider that a good tenant, but um, our job is to pick our customers. Our tenants are our customers. I wish it was such, and like it is, it's literally our tenants are our customers in this business. Unfortunately, if I have a really bad customer that's treating me negatively, I can't fire my customer. In consulting, if a tenant disrespects me, I fire them, I don't have to work for them anymore. But a tenant, you have to keep working for them, even if you hate them. Even if there's, the relationship is dissolved, even if they're out to get you, even if, so that's the thing with tenant placement, it's very, it's more important in, in this business than it is in any other business to pick your customers. And so that's something I, I say to you know, sort of think about when you're going into real estate because you don't, you, when you choose your customer, you're stuck with them. Okay. Next question. Mike, do not eat processed food. I'm still trying to get weekly food bill below 200. Welcome to any thoughts. Glad you're getting better, thank you. Um, you know, it depends, William. I do on occasion eat processed food, but uh, I prefer to not eat processed food. That's something that, you know, I, I definitely, I find it a lot more affordable and a lot more uh, health. I just feel better when I'm eating not processed food. So as an example, uh, what are we having tonight? We're having meatloaf and scalloped potatoes. But, you know, my wife is going through a hard time health-wise right now. So we have, I actually brought on a full-time nanny. So she's actually making the meal upstairs right now. But, um, yeah, I don't want to sign title, guys, but it's, we're like privileged here, but one of the best decisions, bar none, um, was integrating that into our life. Um, I'll keep you guys updated on how that goes. But, uh, yeah, it's, I'm excited to go have a healthy meal right now. Ben says, regarding stocks, how do you see the stock market faring in a hypothetical, more sustainable future? Is endless growth of assets possible with finite resources? Um, are there finite resources? Can we not mine on the moon and in asteroids? Do resources, are they finite? I think this universe uh, has endless amounts of resources at our disposal in that sense. But um, 
have you hedged against this somehow? It's a good question. Um, one that's more philosophical and deep and the kind of questions I like to tackle on this channel. And I wish I had more time to kind of think it through, but you know, my initial thoughts are growth at the same rate can't happen forever. It's just, it shouldn't be possible, right? Same like you know, inflation, at some point, things are too expensive um, and things sort of get out of touch and out of balance, right? I think there's definitely uh, lack of value in many sectors of the market. I think that the market's been roaring hot for too long. Um, the problem is, a part of the problem is, um, you know, I think that people are believe that technological advancement will allow us to keep becoming more and more and more efficient. GDP will just keep growing and growing and growing. And, you know, it sort of has, you know, excluding COVID, we've had some insane amounts of growth. I think the next year or two, we're in for some sobering statistics on unemployment rates, on GDP, um, on, uh, you know, a whole bunch of things, international trade. COVID has changed things in a big way. And I think the market's overvalued right now. There are still a ton of value plays you can get involved in. Just because the whole market is overvalued doesn't mean every stock within it is overvalued. There are many companies you can invest in where there is great value plays. Uh, same is true in real estate. You know, you could say the whole real estate market's overvalued. We're up 20% year over year. 20%, over 20% in some areas of, of London and surrounding area and 24% in some pockets year over year. As in like last year, July to July now. That's messed up. Um, for the market to be growing this fast in some pockets is just um, not sustainable. That said, I see the odd property pop up. It's the same price now that it was a year ago. And you know you can snipe up those deals where they haven't realized any appreciation yet. So that's, you know, there's, there's unfortunately no golden standard for anything. There's no like one rule like, hey, the whole market's overvalued, can't invest. Or hey, the whole real estate market's overvalued, can't invest, right? There's, there's always opportunities. But yeah, it's a good idea when we're talking about how do you hedge against the fact that the market may stop growing at the same rate. You could say in the fire movement, the 4% safe withdrawal rate is no longer valid. You could make that argument, right? You could say, um, it, you know, you might need to rely on 3% or 2.5%. I've seen that thrown out there that the growth won't be as high as it once was. Um, I'll answer all these questions in a sec about, about those. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't have the answer to it. And I guess you just be more conservative in your assumptions. If Does it make sense that someone's going to borrow money for 10% in the future? I, I think so for the foreseeable future, especially with the sort of growth we've been seeing. People will, there'll be someone who's arbitraging the market and we'll, we'll have growth. Mass Financial Hero says, can you give us an update on your Florida house? What is the purchase price and potential Airbnb income? Uh, completely terrible. Um, I shared this on a couple of streams ago, but because of COVID we had, we were getting 12 to 14,000 a month, uh, bookings sort of lining up and that just died when COVID hit in March. And so we were stuck with vacancy for the better half of, half of March, April, May, June, July. Our con, we, we had so much bad luck on this project, it's not even funny. The border shut down, so I can't go down there as a Canadian, am I even allowed to travel there? Um, our contractor got COVID mid fix up. The renovation ended up being this like, we ran into some stuff we weren't expecting, that stuff that doesn't add value. There's some, some porch work that had to be done that adds no value to the property at all that we had to do. Um, so that was unfortunate as well to do things like that. Um, we ended up getting an offer to rent it out for $6,000 a month, plus they, they paid all the utilities to a tenant for seven months. That was just in, in July there. Um, but yeah, things did not go that well. We're going to be listing it for sale. So our decision was 
uh, Airbnb might take a while to recover and we didn't want to wait. So we just decided to, to list it. We bought under value. Um, so there's an opportunity for appreciation and for, for growth there. So I, I don't feel like we made a huge mistake. I feel like there'll be still some profit there. And we reduced the tenants. Um, we gave them a discount because we're gonna be showing the property. So yeah, overall that's the update there on that property uh, with that one. So unfortunately timing was just, you know, it was a great deal and things were looking really good and then COVID hit. And that's the reality sometimes in business where, you know, something looks great and then the market conditions change and it's no longer what it was. That's life. You have to make decisions on the information that you have at the time. And as information changes, you may have to change your decision. So uh, yeah, we, we bought it for over $100,000 USD under value. And so I'm confident in that. The market there hasn't, uh, in the upper luxury market, it hasn't appreciated like it has in London, but we haven't lost any real value. So there's, um, there's definitely opportunity there that we'll cash out and make a little profit. And um, yeah, it sucks for that time during COVID, we lost, we just had operating costs at that time. We didn't have any income coming in. So that was the sad reality of that. I have lots of Airbnbs here in London, being fully transparent, a lot of properties that were on Airbnb that bookings just stopped, like zero, nothing. And I have properties just sitting. I get one booking for like four or five, six days, right? So COVID was hard if you were an Airbnb investor. COVID is hard if you're a student rental investor. It's, that market's dead. There's thousands of students not coming back and tons of available inventory in the market. So the price of bedrooms has been falling exactly as I predicted in March it would. In April, I predicted the same thing. People were arguing with me that, hey, prices aren't gonna fall, rooms aren't gonna fall. Yes, the price of bedrooms is falling. Yes, it's hard to rent a six bedroom house right now. There are groups of six who wanna come together and there's not dozens of groups of six that wanna come together right now. Uh, go to Fanshawe College or Western University like there was before. So it's, it is challenging and the market's different than it was. So yeah, that's, that's the real transparency there. Hey Mike, do you think the 4% rule works well? Trinity rule. So Sardino, we kind of just touched on that a second ago when we talked about perpetual growth and I guess the growth curves changing over time in a degree of steepness, right? Where maybe we're not growing as fast as we were before. And so 4% withdrawal rate for infinity might not be sustainable. I think if you take, a lot of that portfolio was built on equities and bonds, right? Most people base their fire portfolio on an equities and bonds um, split of like 60, 40 or something to that effect. Forget bonds and just put, you know, private lending in that spot or investing in real estate in that spot. I like private lending personally the most. Put, put lending in that spot and you can get a 10, 12% return secured, 80% loan to value. So you're, you're pretty safe that way. And you'll get way higher return from your fixed income then, and then your equities can just can just float. So you're not relying on the equities, you can live off the fixed income portion through private lending and get a much, much better return than you would say investing in bonds. So I'm a big fan of, of doing that and then you could rely on like a 4% rule pretty easily, pretty safely. But yeah, the, the, you know, historically speaking, the Trinity study relies on old data and it, uh, based on past data, you should be able to withdraw 4% from portfolio for infinity. Now will the market, behave as it did previously, pretty likely. We tend to repeat ourselves, history tends to repeat itself. It tends to be one of those things where we just continue to follow the same um, sorts of cycles. So, yeah. Okay, I'm going back up here, I found my spot. Brandon, how you doing? Rudy says, hey, hey. Key says, do you have any predictions for the real estate market for 2021? Thanks. Um, I think flat or down for 2021. That's my prediction. 
Varun says, hey Mike, hope you're feeling better. Thanks, I am feeling a bit better now, yeah. Andrew says, any tips on convincing an appraiser what market rent is for appraisal purposes? They claim it is 850 for two units. We just rented for 1250 after having 50 plus showings. Yeah, I've had the same issue, Andrew. A lot of appraisers are being very conservative. They're not in the market. They don't um, work in the market. One thing I do is bring to my, to my uh, appraisals, I'll bring you know, a print off from Kijiji and Facebook Marketplace of all the available units that are similar to mine that are rented, posted for 1,500, 1,400, whatever, and show them how many views they're getting and say, this is the market rent. I'm also a realtor. This is the market rent. Uh, and that helps. But yeah, appraisers are very conservative and they will be conservative because they don't understand that conditions have changed and you have to update them and inform your appraiser of this. Yeah, they're gonna be conservative, right? Because if they go high, their license is on the line. If they go low, there's no repercussions. So why wouldn't they just go low? The bank wants them to go low, there's pressure, they're hired by the bank in most cases, or the lender, uh, they're not usually hired by you. And so their license is, if they're wrong, the bank's gonna sue them. Say, hey, you promised 1250. We can only get 1150 now for rent, and so we're gonna sue you. And so that's why the appraiser uh, kind of would be more conservative, right? Because they don't want to lose their license. Uh, three friggin' hours a day. I don't know what three hours a day is, I'm confused. But Victoria says, uh, hi Mike, I've joined you recently. Could you please tell me more about your way to private lending? Well, Victoria, I'm not a pro on private lending, but my understanding is the way that you build a private lending business is you talk to mortgage brokers or talk to real estate lenders in the space who are looking to borrow funds. Often mortgage brokers could connect you they're dealing with mortgages all day long. They come across slippers. They come across people who need, you know, a six month mortgage between, you know, financing terms. But I've explained on here before, um, I have four or five good videos on private lending where I've done on the Wise Wall Show. Uh, they're not labeled well, so you're, you have to watch a bunch of them to find it. I don't know what episode it would be, probably like maybe episode 50 or 60 or something. We're on way more than that now. I don't know what we're on now. We're probably on like well over hundred episodes of the Mike Rosart Show, but, uh, or the Wise Wealth Show. But the idea is that you, you get a lawyer to secure the funds on title in first, second, or third position. First position, you have the most security. Second position, you're in second position to whoever's mortgage is in first. Third position, you'd be in position to the first two mortgages. So you don't really want to be in third position unless you're getting like a really high double-digit return. Um, but you might do a first position mortgage at 60% loan to value, which is extremely conservative and safe with your money and uh, lend up to 60% of the value of the house so that the owner of the house has 40% equity in their, you know, equity in their property and you've put up 60% and advance that. And if they don't pay you the interest that you agree to, say it's 10% interest or something to that effect, then you would uh, take their property. It's a really pretty easy process. You would eventually get power of sale and you'd be able to sell it and recoup um, the funds. So you could build in a ton of fees in your agreement. You basically go get a lawyer who's a real estate lawyer and say, hey, I wanna do some lending. Can you secure a mortgage on X property for me? they are gonna pay your legal fee. So you will make the borrower pay your legal fee. So it's, there's no legal fees on your part. All you would do probably on your end is do a commitment letter. So write a one or two page commitment letter. They would sign it, you'd agree to the terms before the mortgage is funded, and then you'd set your money aside for them and you'd fund their deal. Um, that can take a week or two to fund. It can be even quicker. If your lawyer moves quick, you get it done in a couple of days. You can have a mortgage registered and it's done. Private lending is a beautiful thing because you basically act as the bank. So for a flipper, he might have a $10,000 mortgage breakout fee if he puts an A-lender mortgage on the property when he sells it in six months. You might agree, hey, 
I'm not gonna charge you $10,000 to break out of this mortgage. Pay me back in six months, I'm fine with that. I will do a 12% interest rate. And it's cheaper for them to pay you 12% for six months than it is for them to pay the bank 3% and then pay a $10,000 breakout penalty and $3,000 in you know, extra fees to break out of that mortgage. And so it can be cheaper for a flipper or someone looking to burr a property to go with a private lender. And so there's a space and a need for that. And so you could theoretically, if you had some money to lend out, if you had 50 grand, you could lend out. You could be that guy who gets a second mortgage to Joe's house and fund his renovation or Tom's you know, uh, property wants to duplex convert. You could fund the renovation and secure a second mortgage on there. Or, you know, Sally owns her house outright and you want to lend to Sally and she wants to use the money to buy another property, a cottage. And now she owns 100% of her property. So that could, uh, yeah. So there's lots of things to consider. The rate you want to charge, um, typically between, I would say what's normal is between 6% interest and 16% interest. Those are the kind of the, the windows. I've seen six to 20. In, in the range and 20% being like a second or third mortgage that's more risky, 6% being a super safe, like, you know, $2 million house, you're putting a $500,000 mortgage on, there's no other mortgages on it, you're in first position, super, super safe. Like chance of losing your money is like zero. Um, that would be like where you give them a really good interest rate. And the lowest I think a private lender should ever go is six or 7% because we are not the bank, we're a private citizen. And it costs more because we don't go through the same strenuous process that a bank would. And we're not the bank. We're the alternative lender. When you can't qualify with the bank, you come to us. Or if you can qualify with the bank and you don't want to pay the bank's lender fees or go through the stress, you come to private lenders. Um, it, I don't have a big private lending business right now. It's a goal and a dream of mine. I want to move my funds out of you know real estate, physical, tangible real estate that I own now and, and some stocks and move it into uh, private lending. It's one of my goals. You can follow along on my journey. I'll be exploring it and doing it more. I've done some private lending. I've done mortgages before. I've done private lending, unsecured, insecured. So I can speak to the couple of deals that I've done, which would give me a level of, I guess, somewhat of an expert. But to be honest, no one's really a pro. Um, you know, all the people here on us talking, none of us really have done, you know, gone through everything. There's always something that I would encounter that I would have no idea about, but happy to share what I know. And, uh, you know, connect you, just talk to a good lawyer. That would be a good place to, to start. They can explain the whole process to you. Okay, next question. How can we join you privately? So Rudy says, join me privately. So you, you could, uh, I think there's supposed to be a feature on YouTube coming out where you can pay a subscription fee and we'll do like a private chat and there's be private videos that I can do where I can share more intimate details that are not publicly viewed. Um, we can get into more specific case scenarios of things you might not want to share. You might not ask, you know, special detailed questions. Um, but I don't know if YouTube got that out yet or not. I'll check in with that. Someone go on my profile and tell me if it's possible to, to do that. But um, yeah, that's that's something we can do. I don't really have an interest in doing like the private groups. If you want to follow me along in my daily life, just follow me on Instagram, not my gross heart. I do a ton of like educational sharing there. I'll share crazy things that I come across you know, and properties, I'll share crazy scenarios that I run into for educational purposes. And when bad things happen to me, sometimes I'll share those things too for your entertainment and educational benefit. Okay, next question. Ruben says, I have $50,000 down and I can qualify for a mortgage. What is your advice on getting started in real estate? Do you have property for sale and possibly JV with you? Uh, no, I'm not. Yes, I have property for sale. Uh, right now on MLS, we have a couple properties coming to market. Um, 
we do for sure. So reach out to me on Instagram if you wanna hear about those opportunities. Some that haven't hit the market yet and some that are on the market right now. Yeah, uh, as far as JVing with me, not an option. I'm at a point where it doesn't make sense for me to join venture. Um, the time investment, the education, all that required to, to partner up, I'm just not in a position where I wanna be acquiring properties with anyone except for maybe a few exclusive mentees who are fully trained and understand my process and, and the way that I like to, to do things. They understand how I go through a renovation. They understand, because the education process is really where it takes most of my time. So yeah, I'm not interested in starting any new businesses and each joint venture partnership is almost like a new business. But thank you for asking. If you wanna reach out on Instagram, I can send you some deals. Varun says, what are your thoughts on pre-construction investment flipping, buying and selling before closing? Uh, I've talked about this before on my channel. I'm a big fan of the pre-construction if you can get in with a low amount of money down uh, and you can flip the paper. So in some of the condo pre-constructions, you're two, three years out, you're locking in a price now for a property that'll be finished in three years of condo. And oftentimes you can put five, $10,000 up and in three years you have to put the rest of it up, right? There's like stages or something. The first year you put five or 10 grand up, year two you put another 10, 20 grand up, whatever. So then when you finally get to closing, you have to get a mortgage and whatever. But if you can't qualify for a mortgage, you just flip the paper, call a bunch of real estate agents and say, hey, I've got a condo under contract for 350,000 in Toronto. It's worth 500,000 now. I got under contract three years ago. So you get all the appreciation on the gross asset without having to actually buy the asset. You just put some money up to lock the contract up. It's called flipping paper. It's a very common process to do with the, in the condo market and the pre-build market. Um, I almost did it, almost did it. Um, Harriet says, if you want to reach out on Instagram, I can send you some deals. What? Yeah, so like I could send you, I, what I do is connect you to AJ, my partner, and he'll let you know what we've got. Um, or I connect you to people that I know who have properties for sale, that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, as an example of properties that are on the MLS right now, we have a potential triplex property at 88 and 90 Rectory Street, two separate properties. I think there's a, a good amount of value in those properties right now. Um, so 88 Rectory and 90 Rectory, both legal duplexes, but one could be a triplex, huge parking lot in the back in the, probably could be had in the 335,000, 340,000, something like that range uh, per. And it's in East London, but it, yeah, the area is not that bad. It's, it's close to ham and eggs, so it's not, not the best. But again, if you're just trying to run a rental property and maximize cash flow and you're willing to deal with those sorts of headaches, the tenants in there are pretty good. They're paying market rents. Um, it's not quite 1% rule, but it's, it's decently close. There would be positive cash flow, uh, considerable. So that's an example of property on the market right now. Uh, we have a property on Cartwright downtown that's listed on MLS. We have a property on Adelaide Street and Oxford Street that's coming on MLS soon. It's a, a duplex property in the, the low to mid 300s. We have a, a five bed plus two bed um, property. It's two bed, two bath lower, five bed, uh, two bath upper unit, so it's I guess seven rooms in total with a detached garage coming to the market soon at four eighty nine thousand on Oxford Street. So that'd be a great property for someone who wants to house hack, live in the five bedroom upstairs, rent out the two bed two bath for fourteen fifty a month. Kind of covers the mortgage, good little house hack scenario, um, which will be coming on the market. I have a fourplex that has a laundry mat in it um, in St Thomas that will be around the four hundred thousand mark, so one hundred grand a unit, which has been completely vacant. Uh, vacant and we'll have fresh tenants in it and it's got great cap rates like we're talking eight plus cap um, Again, great opportunity coming to the market soon I've got a property in Mount Bridges coming back on the market, which is a decent opportunity. I've got um, We just sold off our, our last of our lot developments there on uh, on the water so that cottage project where we did the 
the four lots severed, that project's done, uh, coming to market. I've got, the list goes on. We got lots of properties that are coming on the market. So if you wanna get in on some of those before they head on MLS, hit me up. Um, I'll connect you. If you're looking to buy property in London, Ontario, we have our own brokerage, right? Investors Choice Realty. And that's all we do is investment properties, right? So I would work with you, but mostly we work with AJ, who's the broker of record, my partner. He does more of the active day-to-day, -day, right? So he would take you to the showings and you know you can consult me on the end negotiation, but he's mostly your, your key realtor piece there. And he knows everything that I know about looking for cash flow and things like that. So if you're looking for a realtor in London, Ontario, hit us up, we'll take good care of you from start to finish, like AJ will offer some services like property management, high level, you know, connecting with trades and renovating uh, the property will give you that sort of full service piece and it costs you nothing because the commission when you buy goes to the, the agent, right? It's paid for by the seller. Something to think about if you're buying property in London, Ontario. For those people who are still starting their journey, um, it's a great alternative uh, to just going through a random realtor who's nothing about investment properties, who sells granny's house and, you know, the married couple's house and that's all they do. They don't understand cap rates. They don't understand cash flow. And so that's where finding a real estate agent who's focused just on investment properties, who understands cash flow, who understands how to renovate a property and how to add value to it. Um, that's a huge piece in your real estate investing arsenal. And I think you need to have someone on your power team that's that's solid. So that's why we started the brokerage and and why we, uh, we're helping a lot of people actually. We're helping quite a few people in London invest in real estate. And I'm doing it more passively. Uh, I'm largely not involved. I don't do much of the paperwork. AJ's doing most of that. That's his full-time thing. That's what he's doing. Um, I'm more helping from a you know high-level uh, deal approval, basically. I, I'm like, it's more passive for me. I'll be honest. I'm not going to be out there showing you the houses. You're not going to be going around with me. Um, but you get a lot of my strategies and access through AJ. So hit us up. If you hit me up, I'll connect you with AJ. I'll give you his phone number. Next question. If you won the lottery, you would quit your job. That's, yeah, that's the question, I don't know. Um, someone commented there that they love their job, right? And that's something to think about. Um, if you won the lottery, would you quit your job? And if the answer is yes, then you know maybe you need to work towards fire. If the answer is no, you wouldn't quit your job, then first question I'd ask is, are you sure? Um, but I mean, I guess you'd be lucky, you'd have the best job in the world. And if you won the lottery, then you could quit at any time if the industry changed. Douglas Dix is super lucky to, to love his job. Uh, Future Wiz says, Mike, I heard you can buy a house with no money down with an FHA loan. You can ask them to factor it into the loan. Is this true? Um, again, I'm not familiar with the FHA loan process in the US, but in Canada, you can do the 5% down. I understand that from people I've talked to, there is an option to buy you know, for almost no money down, depending on you know, certain, like certain veterans and things like that can get deals where they're almost no money down. Um, uh, the, thing with, the thing with those no money down type deals is there's always a cost, right? So just because you're putting no money down doesn't mean you're paying a cost. There'll be private mortgage insurance for putting less than 20% down. That's gonna cost you a significant, you know, a few thousand dollars a year in um, cost for insurance. In, in Canada, the private mortgage insurance is offered through CMHC and Genworth and a few other um, type guys. So it's something to think about. Um, it's better to get into a deal. I guess if the deal's good enough, it's better to get into it. If you've no other way to get into it and you have to do the zero down deal, it can make good sense. But if you can raise the money elsewhere, even borrow at 10%, it's cheaper than paying all the fees. If you add all those fees up, 
for doing the 5% down deals in Canada um, or probably the same sort of thing. I'm pretty sure the private mortgage insurance is actually cheaper in the US, so it might be more advantageous in the US, but here in Canada, it's very, very expensive to do. And that private mortgage insurance is an upfront fee that you pay. Your 5% down payment is pretty much gone to that fee and you never get it back. Whereas in the US, I think it's paid per year. Uh, so once you get to 20% in equity, then you don't pay that fee anymore. Was my understanding, but yeah, it, it could make sense. You could, and yeah, you'd, you'd factor it into the loan, so your payments would be higher, but it could make sense if the deal's sweet enough. Rudy says, do you think that investing in real estate is safe in Alberta actually after the crisis in general? Rudy, I'm not sure. Um, you know, nothing's 100% safe. I think the market's pretty overvalued right now, but is there opportunity in Alberta? I'm sure there's some opportunity um, somewhere. Not all, the, not all the markets are the same, right? Not all the streets are the same. Not all the houses on every street are the same. Hi Mike, just found your channel. I live in Toronto for my job, but your vids suggest larger cities are not great for real estate investing. Well, that's not necessarily true. It's just the cap rates tend to be worse in larger cities. Uh, should I start learning about other cities in real estate? I mean, there's nothing wrong with learning about other cities. You might find a property that has a better cap rate with better cash flow, and that would make a lot more sense. <laughs> he always finds a way to get into the back video, however he can. <laughs> Literally, I'm in a corner, and he found a way to be in the video. <laughs> Uh, that's too good. Jonas is like, where's Waldo? He just kind of appears like... Actually, no, I guess Waldo's kind of hard to find, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, it's harder to get cash flow in the bigger cities, but it's definitely something that um, is... You know, there are still deals in Toronto, too. People still find ways to make deals work. There's just less cash flow. Dylan says, hope you're feeling better, Mike. Do you invest in REITs? Uh, I don't currently. I'm over invested in real estate, but I think there are some opportunities right now, especially because of COVID in some of the REIT plays. Um, but yeah, we talked about that, I think a stream or two ago, someone brought that point up. My house has poor old fencing. If I add those nice white fencing, how much more value does it add to a house? That depends. Um, the white picket fence you're talking about, I guess. It just depends on the area. If all the houses in the area have terrible fences, you putting in a white fence might not make any difference at all. Fences are something and landscaping is something that if done right can add some good value, but sometimes adds no value at all. So just, it just depends. You gotta be careful. I look at comps. Uh, Ivan, how you doing Ivan? I'm good. He was a college graduate. Uh, does that mean the Canadian job market is not as good as the US? Uh, in the future ways, you have to remember that I chose to not go to Toronto or Vancouver or a large market. I stayed in London, Ontario, which is a small crappy city. And so because, well, it's not crappy, I like London, but it's a small city for someone in the finance industry, right? The finance degree. Um, so I took a job that paid 50 grand a year when I could have made a job, or could have got a job making $75,000 a year, $80,000 a year Canadian in Toronto. And I chose London because the job I chose had more flexible work hours. The culture in London was one where like, it was family orientated. And a lot of people didn't work on the weekends. In Toronto, everyone seemed to work on the weekends. It was like a thing. And I wanted to spend my time investing elsewhere and doing side houses and building businesses and eventually into real estate. So I made the cognizant, conscious choice to take a lower paying job that was less stressful, would allow me to be promoted faster, um, would look better on my resume and would allow me to focus on the side hustle. So it was a con like a, a conscious choice to do what I did. Ivan says, you gotta try selling stock options, Mike. Another great side hustle. 30 minutes a day. Ivan, I'll, I'll take a look. I'm happy to, to look into that actually. A uh, bunch of friends have been saying the same thing about selling options. My worry is scale. Like if I had a million dollars to trade options, 
one, is that high risk? And two, like, can you trade options with that sort of money? I think people are doing this with small amounts of money and I don't know how well it scales. And if it does scale, why aren't all the big banks doing it and getting, you know, like why aren't the investment bankers doing it and getting 20% return on their money? What's, something doesn't smell right here. And once something is good and everyone finds out about it, then it's no longer good, right? Chris says, question, you don't have to answer this, but what rate per hour do you value yourself at right now? Chris, um, well, I do the occasional coaching call for 150 bucks for 30 minutes. So I guess I value myself at 300 bucks an hour. Yeah, but I wouldn't wanna work, if you offered me 300 bucks an hour to work eight hours a day for you, I would turn that down. I would need a lot, like if you wanted to hire me for a long period of time, you need to pay me more. Uh, for short periods of time, I will work for less. Like I'll give you 30 minutes or an hour, maybe even two hours of my time. But if you want a whole day of my time, it's gonna cost double per hour. So it depends on what I'm doing and depends on how long you want to pay me. So like for a full-time shackled job, I would need, like to lock me to an office cubicle, I'd probably need seven figures. I have no interest in being in a desk for less than seven figures a year. Probably no one's gonna hire me for seven figures a year, so that kind of works out good. Um, okay. It's just, tell me about it. Ivan says, some of my tenants text and email me for every little thing. Yeah, it's, it can be really tough being a landlord. It's a tough job. Job, business. Okay, answered that question already. Um, Ivan says, other tenants are entitled, like you say, they demand, I'm using my last month's rent for one of them moving out, write new leases every time they get a new roommate, etc." Ivan, I mean, that's probably good practice, to be honest, to write a new lease, or at least amend the lease in some way when a new tenant comes in. So some of that stuff is, is reasonable. But yeah, tenants can be, you know, landlords can be unreasonable too. It's on both sides of the fence. I've met landlords who are crazy, have done crazy things to their tenants or have crazy practices at their properties. So it goes both ways. There are bad landlords, there are bad tenants, there are good landlords, there are good tenants. Um, some tenants might find a good landlord bad and some landlords might find a good tenant bad and vice versa, right? It's a personality thing too, right? Whether you gel, whether things work, whether the practices of the property or something that you like. However, there are certain benchmark standards. A tenant that doesn't pay rent is a bad tenant. A landlord that doesn't fix up a property is a bad landlord, right? There are certain things that make them objectively bad. Um, an annoying landlord, one that's there every day fixing up the property, that would be annoying to me, trying to always make the property perfect. I would, as a tenant, I'd find that annoying. But some tenants would love that. They're like, wow, my landlord's here every day fixing something up, making the property perfect. I love it, he's there like, like grass clippers, you know? And so it just depends on what the tenant's looking for and what the landlord's looking for. All right, I gotta go faster here. This is, I'm gonna throw these questions unless I go faster. Uh, Harriet says, follow-up question last week, I'd argue that you factor in time. McDonald's worker would make a corporate ROI, comparable ROI if they just worked weekends and invested in ETF. Do you disagree? Yeah, I think time is an important metric. Return on time or return on stress are important. I've taken on projects where I've made $100,000 and had to fight with tenants of the landlord tenant board and fight with tenants, like they're calling my phone all the time. I would prefer to never make the 100 grand. They could keep all the money, wish I never even bought the property because the return on stress and return on time were terrible. Um, evicting tenants is one of the worst possible things you can do as a landlord. I avoid it like the plague. I only buy vacant properties. In the last year, I, have, I can't think of any properties I've bought that came with tenants. I'm not interested at all, period. Um, so that's something that, uh, you make a great point here yet. Sanam says, can you recommend a mortgage broker for private lending, $10,000 or less in London, TIA? 
um, thanks in advance. So Sanan, I can't think of anyone who would do like 10,000 or less. That's such a small amount of money that it wasn't really worth the time. Probably go on like, go, go to lendingloop.ca. Uh, My friends, I graduated from Richard Ivey School of Business. Friends of mine, Cato and, uh, well, acquaintances of mine, Cato and Brandon, they started that. So check out Lending Loop. You can lend to businesses for between like eight, nine, 10%. It's like crowd, the only crowdsourced uh, platform in Canada where you can do private lending. Um, like like lending tree in the US, but in Canada. So check out Lending Loop. They're great for business to business lending with small amounts of money like that. That's what I recommend to start. And then once you build up enough money that you can actually do mortgages, then move into the private lending space. Anthony says, Warren Buffett opened a position in Barrett Gold. What is your opinion of gold as an alternative to bonds since gold should at least go up with inflation, but low bond interest rates won't beat inflation? Anthony, I actually believe in that, that actually is a pretty sound strategy, I think, when you're, if your goal is to beat inflation. Now, my goal is not just to park money and beat inflation, right? Um, yeah, I think that gold would outperform bonds in this market right now. Remember, we're in a negative interest rate environment. There's almost no return. People will take your money and give you nothing for it. You, like, that's what Buffett's dealing with, is like, he's got billions and he needs to park it somewhere to beat inflation, right? To beat the buying power of his money. He has to put it somewhere. And gold's a pretty safe thing, given the crisis we're in right now because a second wave would mean a good amount of appreciation on the gold and uh, on average, it will hold um, its position. But I don't see him buying gold, I think he's buying companies, right? Barrett Gold, um, they, you know, they're a producer. So I think Warren Buffett's still interested in investing for value play companies where there's something on the balance sheet where there's, you know, they're creating cash flow. Buying physical tangible gold, it produces nothing for you. I'd be much more interested in buying a gold producing company um, that produces cash flow, right? Same as, as Buffett. I like his, uh, his line of thought, but I think he's way more conservative with his money than I am. I need a better return on my money, so I need to take a little bit more risk. Not a lot more risk, but a little bit more risk. How much do you think East London might gentrify in the next 10 years? Well, Sanan, the, the challenge I think with East London is, you know, it's already gentrified a ton. East of Adelaide, what they call the Old East Village, it was garbage five years ago. Like five years ago in Old East Village, what they called East of Adelaide, EOA. Like you get stabbed at night. Like there was people shooting up in the alleyways and now it's a desirable place to live, right? One of the best neighborhood in London award um, for, for sort of like hipster eclectic type charm. And so that sort of stuff happens because people are buying properties and fixing them up there. In a hot market, people will continue to buy properties and dump money into them, right? In a declining market, people aren't gonna dump money into their properties anymore. So things tend to decline. Everyone pulls back, landlords tighten up, try to hold on to the money that they have. They aren't dumping into their properties, right? So in a downward market, we'd see gentrification sort of drop away. The problem we have is that in London, about 20% of the tenants, like 50 to 100,000 people, are like barely getting by on drugs, mental illness issues, one of those categories, right? And those people need to live where it's affordable. And it's only affordable in London in the shitty areas of town, which is basically just East uh, Soho, so South of Horton area. There's a couple other pockets that are they're kind of bummy, but those are the bummy pockets. And so my question, I guess, is if those areas are gonna gentrify, where are they going? Where are those tenants that, are, and those people who have like the crazy mental illness, I've dealt with some of these people, and like they're literally smashing hammers into walls. They're like, they're psychotic, some of these people, and they need to live somewhere. And so wherever those people live, um, they wanna be close to their, their methadone clinic, they wanna be close to their government, they wanna be able to walk to their government pokey check that comes in, right? So they're gonna live near those, those uh, pogey centers, right? And they're mostly in the East and downtown, right? So those people have to live somewhere. And wherever they live, the area won't be good. 
they will destroy. If you put them, you can check out the new, um, the government subsidized housing. There's one on Adelaide there. It's beautiful buildings, beautiful um, townhouses they built there. And um, they're, they're, I've seen them like smash holes in windows and stuff. And they, they've trashed beautiful buildings in a period of like five years. It's the tenant profile. It's so bad, they'll destroy any, any property. It's not the property of the landlord that's bad, it's the tenants. They have a lot of drama going on and the drugs and that creates and destroys the building. And there's no cash flow there. So no one you know fixes it up and it kind of goes down, right? So it's one of those things where you, uh, yeah, I mean, if you wanna pick an area to gentrify, pick an area where there's a lot of families living, where there's not a lot of rental units, where it's, um, and maybe there's some undervalued play there, right? But if you're investing in an area that's mostly rental property, mostly tenanted, it takes a long time to get tenants out of a place, right? And an area that they're familiar with, they'll wanna keep living, right? So it's, I don't know, you can't ever gentrify all of London. That's just like the two, there's like two or three bad areas of London still. And the rough tenants need to live somewhere, right? The people who are struggling with mental illness and struggling with drugs and heroin and whatever they're on, meth and all those things, they need somewhere to live, right? And they need somewhere affordable to live. So there has to be an area of town that isn't gentrified for them to live. And so that's sort of a reality. So I wouldn't bet that all of London is ever gonna be gentrified. That's just impossible. There has to be an area that isn't gentrified. Um, my question is, do you ever try to negotiate with a tenant to take their last month's rent and make a better lease for everyone? I live in a condominium, but the landlord does not let us in the unit. Um, yeah, I guess so. Um, I'm trying to think, I don't understand what you mean there, but make a lease better for everyone. Uh, I don't understand that question, to be honest. I gotta wrap this up. My wife's texting me that like I'm way over time. <laughs> I understand why people are fixated on the 4% rule. True, cash flow is more important. Oh, just got a super chat come in. Oh, William says, Mike, please buy your wife some flowers and tell her we wish her good health. Um, have a good evening. First ring of suburbs in the US is where people with issues are going. First ring of suburbs in the US is where people with issues are going. There you go. So. That's something to think about too, is they're being pushed out of the cities, they're, they're finding places to live. Thank you, by the way, for the, the $20 super chat. It means a lot. Um, it definitely supports the channel and keeps things going, and I, I appreciate it. Um, I'll definitely take this these funds and get my wife some lunch. She's not a big Flowers fan, but I'll uh, take her out for some takeout lunch. She isn't really in the mood to be going out right now, but I'll bring her something in, and then thank you for the support in this time. Appreciate it. I'm gonna go rapid fire and answer like three more questions here. Uh, private lending is short-term loans, right? No, not necessarily. Um, I would typically do minimum six months, minimum one year. Typically, it's between six months and three years is most of the private mortgages that I've seen. So it depends if you consider that short-term or not. Cons, um, yeah, the hassle factor, true, but less hassle than real estate investing. Uh, opportunity cost of the money is sitting between loans. Do you agree? Yes, both valid, very valid points. In an ideal world, what you'd have is you'd have... Um, somewhere you could park the money in between funding it out where it's accessible and available. Uh, probably the most ideal would be you could invest it in stocks and then borrow the money back with a line of credit that you could use to then do the lending out and write the interest off against that. That'd probably be in an ideal world where uh, if you're not using the funds, you don't pay for them. Pranav says, how do you evaluate a property? Uh, one way, there's lots of ways to value properties. You can check out all my videos on that, but cap rate is one great way. Uh, business partner and I have fourplex through force appreciation. Can you walk me through thought process of saying whether to open a HELOC or refinance? Uh, well, you want to refinance because you can get 80% loan to value where it's a HELOC, you can't. You can do a HELOC 
mortgage together product and go 80% loan to value. But uh, the HELOC is nice because you, when you take it out, you only pay for what you take out when you take it out. You can put it back if you ever want to. So there's some more flexibility with that product. Uh, basically, I wanted to do a loan 5% down, work it out, refinance, remove the mortgage insurance, understand how to value property. How would I know value? Well, there are three ways to know value. Watch my video on how do you value property. One of them is comparable property sales. The other one is uh, the cost approach to rebuilding the property. People hardly ever use that one. And my favorite one that I rely on most heavily is the income-based approach, using cap rates to value property based on the income that it can produce. Uh, I can't answer that question, it's too long. Uh, lend for a flip. Yes, that's primarily what private lenders are aiming to do is to service the flip market or the short-term one-year market. Typically like a one-year flip is perfect. We can get a 15% return or 12% return for one year on a project someone's improving. That's like an ideal candidate. Ivan says, if we purchase any of these properties, do you or can you manage them for the purchaser? I will not be interested in managing anything, but I can connect you to property managers. I have lots of them in town that are you can use. I have two that are more decent. Um, but yeah, something could be worked out, definitely. Uh, thank you, William, for answering that question. Google answered that one for you. Money spelled backwards is an alter truck, what? Um, okay, I'm gonna have to postpone that one on the options trading there and the naked put options. I can't get into that, I gotta go. Um, thank you everyone so much for watching. Uh, if I missed your question, didn't get a chance to answer it, I was on here for you know well over an hour and 10 minutes now. I will definitely answer it in the comments for everyone who's watching. I'd be happy to provide that. So if your question didn't get answered, when the video is done, take your question, put it in the comments, and I'll happily answer it for everyone to watch. No name says selling options equals selling insurance. Yeah, I mean, there's there's margin there probably to do it. It's an, I don't know. I'm sure if enough people were doing it though, then the market would get saturated and there would be no arbitrage opportunity, right? So anyway, everyone, thank you so much for watching. As always, the secret to unlocking a wealth through you, three levers in your control of your financial future. What you spend, so spend less. What you earn, so earn more. Side hustles. And the returns on the difference of what you've saved, so maximize returns. Spend less, earn more, and maximize returns. Have a good night, everyone, and I'll see you next Wednesday. And in the comments, and on Instagram, at Mike Rosehart. Have a good night.